Welcome to the ATP podcast. It's a week since the Australian Open ended, the dust has settled and the joyful Serbian fans who were so much part of last week's podcast have calmed down and moved on. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers and with the tour having taken a breather this week to allow for a raft of Davis Cup matches, we're using the opportunity to reflect on some of the key trends in the game with those in the know. Plus, having spoken to Jason Kubler last week, we meet the other half of the Australian Open winning men's doubles team, Rinky Hijikata. And we drop in on the Challenger Tour to take a look at how and when players make the jump up from that level. But first, as Novak Djokovic yet again impressed with the numbers, a return to world number one, a record-extending 10th Australian Open title and a record-equalling 22nd major title, Candy Reid spoke to the tennis strategy analyst Craig O'Shaughnessy, who's helped Djokovic in the past with certain aspects of his game. Candy was interested to find out what in particular the new Australian Open champion was looking to refine. One of the reasons I started with Novak was he was looking for me for the ability to put numbers to everything. You know, the first thing I asked him, how could I help him? He said he knew there were things in a match that he was doing that may not be as good or productive as he thought. So my first job was to go through his game, um, you know, w- with a fine comb and, and, and figure out and sort out what is he doing well, what can he improve upon. So when you just even think about that, that was 2017. He'd already won, I think, 14 slams or, or, or somewhere around there. Wildly successful, but was so thirsty to keep improving his game. So, yeah, we, we talked about that a lot. Should he hit more forehands than backhands? He's arguably got the best backhand ever. And the data said absolutely hit more forehands. The the forehand out of the ad court for a right-handed player is far more um, explosive. Uh, you hit more winners. You force more errors off that side. So you don't want to, as a right-handed player, stand in the middle of the court and look to the right and say, that in the juice court I hit forehands and in the ad court I hit backhands. It's actually quite the opposite. It's like, in the ad court I'm going to hit as many forehands as possible and if I can't do much with it, I'll hit backhands. So we definitely talked about that. We talked about coming to the net more, uh, which he's doing here this year again, and um, serving and volleying is to absolutely sneak it in. You know, 40 love, love 40, um, sometimes on a bigger point, and he's done very well with it. So you know, Novak's a guy that has incredible intuition on the court, but he's also driven by numbers as well. Do you see that the difference between, say, um, somebody in the top 10, top 50 and top 100, how willing they are to have that growth mindset and want to learn a little bit more? Because tennis players can get a little bit stuck in their ways, can't they? Whereas well, last year I won a title and I was doing this, so therefore I'm going to stick with it. And it's just not working now. Yeah, it, that's part of it. It's certainly part of the story. So one way to look at it is that each year the number one player in the world wins right at 55% of their points, which is an incredible stat to think that Novak's losing 45% of all the points he plays and, and the same with Rafa and, and Roger at the, at his peak. Um, you know, we play a sport of incredibly small margins, but when you go back to the top 10, it's only around 53% of points won. And when you go to 30 to 40, it's 51%. In fact, the players that are between 40 and 50 in the world are actually losing more points than they win. So sometimes players will tap out as they climb the ladder with just their ability. You know, they, they can't hit the ball harder. They can't run faster. It is what it is. This is their ceiling. They get to 70 and congratulations on a great career. Other players, 
will look to other areas. They'll look to expand their game plan. They'll look to come to the net more. They'll look to incorporate slice. They'll look to maybe drop shot more. Things that are more surprise tactics and they can be better with that. But certainly the ability to know exactly what's going on with your game and exactly what's going on with the opponent. You know, there's many times that you can play a match and it's not about you. You need to look to the other side of the court, say, I am the second most important person on the court. If I can just make this person play poorly, I'm going to win the match. I don't have to play great tennis. In fact, if you think about it, which is great for all the the people listening, think back to your last 12 months of tennis. Probably played somewhere around 50 matches. How many times have you walked off the court and said, I was great today. I felt good. Forehand was on. Backhand was solid. I felt balanced. I felt relaxed. I wasn't nervous. Most times the answer is either zero, one, or two. (laughs) And, you know, it's not a lot. So if that's the reality, if you're only going to play two great matches a year, but you've got 48 other ones you're competing in that you know your A game is not going to turn up for, it's far more beneficial to think that, I just need to make my opponent play their B or C game and I can still win the match. Did you find that as a junior when you were growing up that um, your coach would tell you, well, you know, just worry about your own game. And now you've made that shift and now you realise that actually it's about working out the opposition and not worrying about yourself so much. Yeah, and I I had a, um, a situation like that when I came back to Australia. So I went and played college tennis in the US and then I coached for a, a period of time and the very first tournament I ever play, ever coached at was the 2000 and, excuse me, the 1995 Australian Open. Uh, Dali, Randri and Teffy. Mm, she Madagascar. Came, yeah, Madagascar. She came through qualities, made the third round and I didn't know any of her opponents so I went out to the practice court, I scouted them or I scouted their match if, you know, we're through to the second round so she won three rounds of qualities and made third round. And everything that I did for that tournament was based on the opponent. It was all about the opponent's strengths and weaknesses. But it was interesting at the time when I learned about, you know, what was happening with development in Australia. You had the Australian Institute of Sport, um, which was taking care of a lot of the players. But the mindset back then in Australia from the leading coaches was much more about you just take care of your side of the court and, and do well there and don't worry about the other side, which was in direct conflict with how I helped this young girl from, from Madagascar get to the third round of the Australian Open. So, you know, it's always a mix. Sometimes you go out there and say, I'm going to run my favorite patterns. And, and if they're working, congratulations, you're going to have a fun day at the office. But it is much more about finding out what the opponent doesn't want and giving them a healthy dose of their weaker patterns. You've spoken about um, tennis looking like chaos, but actually it's not. It's about strategic patterns, isn't it? When you've worked with the likes of Novak Djokovic and Matteo Berrettini, obviously they have their favourite things to do. For example, Novak Djokovic, and correct me if I'm wrong, very much seems to like to spread the field a little bit. He likes to get his opponent on the move. Is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. He... When you're watching him next time, pay particular attention to his forehand forehand rally ball down the line. Um, he hits it much more than other players. He's trying to get the opponent moving. He's trying to make the, the point more athletic where he'll have the advantage. He's also baiting the opponent in some ways into making a poor decision. So when Novak goes down the line, are they going to go back down the line backwards? Um, he's also going down the line with his forehand to the opponent's backhand typically. So are they going to try and overhit to the... Uh, to the open court. Um, He's trying to figure out if they're going to be out of position for the next shot because they're having to go side to side. So 
You know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, Carlos Alcaraz is not here, but when he won Miami, he hit a lot of drop shots on big points. He, he's kind of bringing that back. Um, he likes to come to the net. He served and volleyed, I think, 11 times in that final against Rude, won all 11, simply because Rude was standing, you know, halfway to the Bahamas over there. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was just the right thing to do. So, you know, these young guys, I think, have got a very high tennis IQ. They're studying a lot. They're reading a lot. And um, their patterns of play are very, very good. And then what about Berrettini? You've worked with him before, somebody who's got a huge serve and known for their big forehand, but the weakness is on the backhand side. Yeah, there's, there's a few players that I've worked with in my coaching career where the backhand is weaker and it's always something that you've got to look at and, and say, okay, how do we protect this? Um, Rajiv Ram, who, uh, who I worked with in, in singles and, and some doubles when he, in his early career of playing doubles, um, Amir Delic had um, almost beat Novak here, actually. They had a four-setter that almost went to five, and Amir played excellent. And his backhand wasn't the strength of his game and a couple other guys. But, you know, when you have a player you're coaching that has a strong backhand, it just if you can just kind of move that off the table and go, okay, we don't need to worry about that corner, it helps tremendously. Um, but when the backhand is weaker, such as Berrettini, such as Amir, such as Rajiv, You've got to cover for it in some way. So whether it's not hitting the ball cross-court as much, you hit the ball cross-court, it's going to come back cross-court. So playing to the middle of the court um, is always a good idea. Going neutral to defensive down the line to change the pattern of the play is a good idea. Coming to the net to protect the back of the court. Um, and for Mateo, running around it and hitting as many run-around forehands. I mean, his backhand isn't the strength of his game, but his forehand is one of the best of all time. Um, he can do a lot of damage from any part of the court so it's about managing that and and maximizing the amount of forehands he can hit standing in the ad court we it does seem to me that we're seeing more of the Alcaraz style with players throwing in more of the seven volley with the Kasper Ruud and the Daniel Medvedev particularly uh, having right. a very deep service position do you see that continuing yeah well everything in tennis goes in waves you know you'll you'll see a little bit more of this and a little bit more of mm. that and a lot of times it's countering you know, I remember one year I turned up and saw, uh, here at the Australian Open and saw Leighton Hewitt, who'd been in the gym for a few months, and he's put, he put on a lot of muscle. That was in direct response for Federer. He needed more power to match Federer and to play through Federer. You see players that are standing back, such as Rafa, such as Medvedev, such as Kasper Ruud, that are saying, we're quick, we're going to move back and put more returns back in play, then we're going to run. So the counter to that is, is to go forward. You know, at Monte Carlo, it was probably, I think, 2017, I took a photo from the, the press area there. Somebody, I forget who was serving against Rafa, you could barely see, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in the front row, up high, but I could barely see Rafa's head because he's so far back. <laughs> so I wrote a, a column about it. I was like, you know, Rafa is assume, assuming a deep position. You know, that's, that's kind of an extreme tactic to, to stand that far back. That deserves an extreme tactic coming back on the other side, which would be the underhand serve. And I, and I was all for it. I'm like, if Rafa's going to serve, stand back that far, you should be serving underhand to him. And then that was one of probably a few things and of a catalyst, but all of a sudden, over the next couple of years, we saw a lot of underarm serves. And I think it's, a, you know, if you do it at the right time, with the right intention, with the right spirit, um, I think it's exactly the right shot for somebody that's going to stand you know, so far back to return serve because they have an advantage because the ball is slowing down so much. And uh, do a lot of coaches sort of come to you and 
pick your brain on the sly. I know a lot of players obviously now are working with uh, companies that provide the data. Yeah. But uh, with your expertise and your name, do you find them coming to you and sidling up and just asking for a few pointers? Yeah. Uh, you know, quite often it, coaches will reach out, whether it's for one match or for a couple of matches or, you know, take a look at my, at my, um, at my opponents. So, you know, I've had a lot of discussions over the years with coaches at, at slams especially that you know they're with the player 24 7 365 but they don't necessarily have that one nugget that could win that match against that tougher opponent whether it's where that player is going to serve on the big points um, how you should match up against them how you should play them where they're going to break down and you know it's very rewarding to have some piece of information that you can pass on that makes a difference in the match. We have a lot of information these days, don't we? When we're commentating, we see all the numbers, winners, errors, backhands, etc. But I suppose with the player, it's about getting a few points across so you're not overwhelming them. Yeah, very true. You know, what you're looking for is, again, you have four elements to the game, serving, returning, rallying and approaching. So from a serving standpoint, we're always trying to look and say, okay, here is... Here is your first serve targets, um, and that's based on a combination of where that player prefers to serve and also where um, the opponent is, is going to make more return errors and or it will hit the ball back short and you can jump on it and, and in a serve plus one fashion attack immediately. Um, you know, returning, where do they, again, where do they make those errors? Where is the opponent going to serve to you? Um, should you be chipping against the first serve if it's really big? Are they more likely to come forward immediately. These are all the things you want to consider. And rallying, again, where, is, where are they going to break down the most? Where are they weaker? And, uh, you know, a lot of times I, I find myself just encouraging, you know, get to the net. Please get to the net. The win, the win percentage on average is around 47% from the baseline. It's around 67% from the net for men and women. And, you know, you, you don't have to go in a ton of times, but if you have kind of a 50-50 ball, maybe I stay back, maybe I go in. I highly encourage you to go to the net and um, chase that higher win percentage. Just lastly, can you ever now watch a tennis match without just analysing it? It's sort of like a movie if you're a film it, editor. It's just not possible, <laughs> I don't think, anymore. You know, because I'm, I, I'm trying to understand who's doing what to who. Um, I'm, you know, recording in my mind where the winners and errors are coming from. I'm, I'm putting the patterns together to see if somebody's got something that they can continue to do to win, to win the match. You know, the ABCD is always always in my head. The one through eight serve locations are always there. Um, the rally length, especially in zero through four, is always there. So it's just kind of the lens that I view tennis with now. Craig O'Shaughnessy talking with Candy Reid about the growing influence of data analysis in today's top-level tennis. And speaking of data, Tennis Australia has an innovations department that includes a tennis lab. So what do the numbers tell the head of innovation, Marka Reid, about what equipment the players should be using these days? Again, we sent Candy Reid, no relation, to find out. So Tennis Lab really is all about helping players, and particularly Australian players year-round, get the right rackets and string in their hands to add to their games, whether that's with performance in mind or minimising the risk of injury. Getting better and getting better in a sustainable way so you're not getting injured is what, for the most part, from a performance point of view, the game's all about. Do you feel like tennis is ready for this? I do, yeah. The uptake's been great. I think we're three years into what will be a decade-long journey in and around trying to help 
players better understand how they can go about customising equipment to get the absolute best out of their games and equally taking the coaches along the, the journey at the same time. I've been in tennis for best part of 30 years now and uh, there have been loads of sort of little gizmos and gadgets and some have taken off, some haven't. What would you say are the best in the market? There's things you can put in your racket, but for instance, and there's obviously PlaySight and Hawkeye courts as well. Yeah, I think, look, sensors, there was a bit of a splash maybe three to five years ago where a number of different groups, manufacturers, tried to introduce sensors into the rackets. I think that that holds part of what's really important for a player but in some respects you're not getting the full picture so you can embed a sensor in a racket or attach one but you're still not really understanding what's happening with the strings so I think part of the magic of really customizing equipment for players lies in making sure you get that right combination of racket and string so that I can get the absolute best out of my game. And what you're doing here in Tennis Australia is essentially giving the player at any level, even the pros all the way down to beginners, the best combination for what they want from their games. Is that sort of correct? Yeah, 100%. So, so consumers around the world or equally in Australia can go to tennislab.com.au. You can plug in your particulars and get a customised or personalised recommendation for you based on the thousands of players that we've had through the physical tennis lab, which is a Hawkeye court whereby I go out, set foot on court, try different combinations of racket and strings and get some data around what's best for my game. So we're trying to democratise that in a way that, again, our sport hasn't. Golf's Mm. done an amazing job. You go and get yourself fitted for golf clubs and so forth and get data on your game. Tennis, we've not done that very well. This fits very close to my heart because I coach um, junior national players and some international players as well. And often they will have uh, played with someone else's racket. They've liked it. They've come back and they say, I want to play with this racket. And I know that that is completely the wrong racket for them. Or you'll speak to someone and they've got the weirdest strings, very, very tight strings, and they're struggling with an arm problem or their grip's too, too big or too small. And, and there's, I think, a, a lot of naivety and ignorance when it comes to this. So what you're doing is very beneficial as far as I'm concerned. So let's just say I've come to you. I'm wanting to change brands and I'm going to the NTC, the National Tennis Centre with you. Where do we start? Yeah, start by getting a a real understanding of what you want to achieve with your game. So you mentioned injury there a moment ago. So independent of brand, the single most important thing you can do if you've got an upper limb injury from tennis is probably to reduce the swing weight. So regardless of the type of racket you're using, it's coming down in weight. And that's been something that we've learned over the last five years. Oftentimes people will do the opposite. (laughs) They want to add to, to make it easier on their arm, or they want to try and change string and so forth. But no, it's dropping swing weight to allow you to swing in a way that's more befitting or reducing the load that your upper body encounters. So that'd be one. But, But that aside, if you're turning your attention to performance, okay, I want to add some more power to my game or more control, it's then about stepping through what your current setup is and then contrasting that against other setups so racket and string combinations that would lend themselves to more control you then set foot on court you feel what it's like across those 10 different combinations and you get hawkeye data pointing you in the right direction and that might point you in a direction that's different (laughs) to what you're feeling yourself so challenge your own paradigm yeah, so it just brings it into the public consciousness that uh, there is another way and you can play with a 26-inch racket if you're not quite ready for a 27-inch. Well, you, you can't, <laughs> ironically enough, because manufacturers <laughs> don't produce them, so right. the brands don't provide them to you. So it's 27 inches and above. Yeah, or so, nothing. 
Yeah, it's kind of, uh, you know, obviously the rules of the game permit a couple of inches longer than the 27. Yep. But um, so, yeah, the, the players will experience that and then land on um, a customization that suits them. And we've had countless. We've had a bunch of the Australian pros. We've had Dylan Alcott when he was playing and, and Dylan experienced some real success in, in making some changes to his equipment. So With the wheelchair tennis players, Dylan Alcott being one of the very, very best indeed, is there a different setup for them? Do they need something different than uh, an able-bodied player? Well, no, some, it more so comes back to the individual, um, what they're trying to achieve out of the game. Uh, and fundamentally, uh, most of the wheelchair players are, are striving for the same, right? Which mm. might be a combination of power, spin or control um, or a particular priority in one of those areas. Are Tennis Australia really uh, investing in this department? Yeah, we have done over the last few years because we see it as a gap, not something that the sport's not turned its attention to it. We've tried to imp- improve our methodologies in and around coaching, sports science and medicines come along in leaps and bounds in the last 15 years, which is fantastic, but we've kind of not spent the same amount of time or effort on equipment. And we know it has an inextricable link to injury, but also performance out on court. Marka Reed, the Head of Innovations at Tennis Australia. No doubt one player who will continue to benefit from the constant investment that Tennis Australia is putting into the game in the country is the recently crowned men's doubles champion Rinky Hijikata. As he told Candy, it was only very recently that he teamed up with fellow Aussie Jason Kubler as they both tried to juggle the logistics of playing singles and doubles. Yeah, I think I asked him uh, maybe a couple months ago whether he was he was interested in playing at the Aussie Open, and uh, yeah, I'm just glad he said yes, and uh, I, f- I feel like we've gelled pretty well together this week. What's worked so well about your partnership? Well, I feel like we both just kind of enjoy playing with one another, you know, there's not too much pressure there, I feel like we're both kind of just trying to enjoy ourselves out there, and obviously he's a great player, um, and he makes life pretty easy for me. He's, um, yeah, does some exceptional things on the court. And uh, as long as I kind of pull a little bit of my weight, then <laughs> I feel like we do all right. What do you think you've learned playing men's doubles at the Australian Open? Um, I'm not too sure, to be honest. I, it's kind of been a whirlwind. I can't really... It's all happened so fast and it's <laughs> all been pretty, uh, pretty crazy, to be honest. Um, I just think that, you know... Um, it's so much fun playing at home and it's a privilege to be able to play here um, whatever event it is and uh, I'm just trying to cherish every moment and try yeah, compete as hard as we can. We've done so well in doubles but I presume that singles is going to be back to the main focus after this and how will doubles help your singles? Um, yeah for sure I mean yeah singles is definitely still the priority and uh, but yeah I think it definitely helps you know just being able to work on a few things um, on the doubles court and obviously serve and return so big in doubles if you're doing that well on the singles court then you you're probably going to be playing pretty well so just being able to kind of fine-tune things like that. Uh, you won your first challenger on home soil last October becoming the youngest Australian to do so since 2018 how did that change your mindset and belief as what you could do? Um, I mean, I felt like the belief was kind of there beforehand. I felt like, you know, I, I, yeah, I felt like I did belong at that level and I felt like my level was good enough to be, you know, among the top 100, top 50 players in the world, hopefully. And, um, yeah, but it was pretty special just to be able to kind of see all that hard work pay off. Obviously, you never know um, until you, you're able to get that first one. And I feel like the first one's always the most difficult. So... 
um, yeah, I was I was really pumped about that, and um, to do it at home as well was extra special. And yeah, I'm hoping there's more to come in the future. Um, you're born in Sydney, yeah. But I believe both your parents are Japanese, and your father's a tennis coach. So tell us a little bit about how you started playing tennis, please. Yeah, um, I mean, my uh, family's originally from Japan, and and my older brother and sister were born in Japan. Um, I was born in Sydney. I've grown up there my whole life. Um, but yeah, my, my older brother and sister used to play and used to go and hit um, with my dad and uh, I used to kind of just go out there with them. Um, I'm a bit younger, so I just kind of muck around a little bit and then hit when I could and then ended up um, loving it and kind of went from there. Did your siblings continue to play? No, they were actually uh, very good swimmers, oh. so um, they kind of pursued that and um, yeah, they were very good athletes as well and... and um, yeah, so they, they stopped tennis after a little while, but um, yeah, I guess I was kind of the one that kept <laughs> going. Uh, did you do swimming as well when you were younger? Uh, a little bit, but I, I yeah, wasn't really a fan. <laughs> I was I was pretty pretty bad at it and uh, didn't enjoy the early wake-ups and, yeah. and getting into the cold pool or anything, so... Um, you preferred to stay dry? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, wasn't my... Uh, yeah, it wasn't my speed really, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I, I stuck to the tennis court. Was your dad, who was a coach, disappointed when your siblings stopped playing tennis? Um, oh, I don't think so. I mean, they were both very good swimmers, and I think it was kind of a no-brainer for them to pursue that. Um, and yeah, they they did incredibly well um, in their swimming careers, and yeah, I think they did they did very well. Um, how has your dad helped you um, and do you speak to him now as a, a former tennis coach? I presume that's why you started playing and he probably was your early coach. But does he still sort of impact your tennis? Um, not as much these days. I think, you know, he's kind of taken a backseat role now. Um, I've worked with a lot of good coaches uh, at the National Academy in Sydney and now at the NTA in Brisbane. And I've been lucky to work with a lot of a lot of great people and um, I'm with Sharky at the moment. Mark mm -hmm. Draper has been unbelievable for <laughs> me. Um, yeah, he's, I mean, what we've been able to do together in a year has been pretty pretty special and I feel like, you know, most of that credit probably has to go to him and, yeah, so I'm hoping we can keep tracking forward and keep doing uh, bigger things. I'd love to talk about uh, the man they call Sharky in a minute, which has to be the best name, but... Sam Paul was your coach at North Carolina when you went to university. What made you choose to go to college in the United States? Um, I think for me it was kind of, um, it was a little bit of a no-brainer. I felt like I was struggling with injuries a bit when I was um, in the juniors and I, I probably wasn't tracking along as well as I was hoping. And um, yeah, there were a couple of years there where I was kind of struggling and, and my mum really wanted me to continue my education as well just so I had kind of a, something to fall back on and um, yeah, I thought it was it was a really good um, kind of pathway and gave me the right tools to to work on my myself as a player and as a person and then kind of hit the ground running when I was I was ready after school and, and I, th I feel like that's kind of been the been the key to my kind of early transit or quick transition I guess um, so far and yeah it's been really good. So um, you've left North Carolina now um, when did you start working with uh, Sharky Mark Draper? Um, I started working with him after Aussie Open last year so in February 2022. And what do you think he's brought to your game? You know he's, he's brought a little bit of a different perspective I guess um, 
yeah, he's um, obviously when he played, he played uh, a lot of transition game and, and he came forwards to the net a lot and he's, that's something that he's tried to implement in my game and I feel like that's somewhere where I've grown uh, a lot in the last year and also just, yeah, he's obviously worked with so many great players and yeah, just working on things like my serve and return as well and, and making sure... Um, you know, tactically, when I go out there, I've, I've got the right game plan and I, I'm kind of clear in what I have to do out there. And, yeah, so just I, I feel like all around it's been a very good fit and um, I'm pretty lucky to be working with someone like that throughout the year. And um, you played the likes of uh, Nadal and Daniil Medvedev. What have you learned from those matches? Yeah, I mean, it's been, um, it's been pretty crazy. Uh, those matches were... Um, obviously massive at the time and, and still are but uh, yeah I, l- I learnt a lot um, you know just about kind of the level and, and what those guys do on the court and, and how relentless they are when they, when you play them and they don't really uh, give you an inch out there so you kind of got to earn everything you, you get out there and um, yeah that's something that moving forward I want to try to do better and keep improving in and hopefully I can uh, yeah start trying to get closer to their level do you feel like when we're at the big tournaments here that you really feel like you belong you said you had no problem with belief before you won the challenger and is that the case now when you're amongst sort of the superstars of the men's game yeah I think more so now Um, I feel like you know when my first couple tour events uh, when I was a little bit younger it's a little bit daunting because you don't really know anyone here you go into the locker room and and you're kind of the odd one out Um, you know you're a lot younger than everyone else and and no one really knows who you are, so it's tough. You don't really have anyone to kind of chat to. No one really wants to hit with you. And I feel like uh, now I know a lot more people on the tour. I feel a lot more comfortable. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I feel like a lot more relaxed, I guess, around the grounds um, now than maybe a year or two ago. Rinky Hijikata with Candy Reed. And speaking of Rinky, the highs of a centre court crowd and major title are just rewards for many years of toiling on the Challenger Tour, which is the level below the main ATP Tour. Mike Cation commentated for both TV and radio at the Australian Open, but to many in the game, he's known as the voice of the Challenger Tour. So, in a break from commentary duties, AO Radio reporter Angus Delaney spoke to Mike and started by asking him whether he can tell which players have potential when watching them for the first time. Yes, you absolutely can because you can see what weapons are are there, right? You're, whether it be a big forehand to serve, the speed, something along those lines. Sometimes it just takes players time to learn how to implement everything in their game. Um, you might see somebody who has that overwhelming pace, but then learning how to use that pace properly, shot selection, that's what the challenger level and even the futures level is all about is learning how to win those matches against different types of opponents and really gaining that experience, that confidence, so that you're able to take that shot selection and that that consistency to the next level. I imagine that the financial side as well, you know, is an important factor for them. Oh, it's tough. Listen, the the whole point of Challengers Futures is to make sure you're here at the Grand Slams because you win a challenger level tournament this is U.S. dollars, but you make about $7,200 for winning the week. Now, to you and I, that's a great paycheck, yes. right? But obviously, <laughs> when you are thinking about paying coaches and taking care of all your travel expenses, that's not a lot. So you have to make sure you're inside that top 250. So you're at the Grand Slams in qualifying with that opportunity to have a much bigger paycheck. Guys like Rinki Hijikata, who was in action last night. I mean, that's this is a big day. Obviously, a wild card, and, yeah. and that's a little bit of a different beast. But he's a guy who's been playing Futures Challengers over the last two years 
to have this opportunity in a, in a big moment like that with a second round payday, that sets up the entire year so he has a little bit more comfort and freedom financially so that hopefully he has that same comfort and freedom on a tennis court. What about some other players that you've seen kind of playing at challenger level and then also make the leap? There are actually two of them from the U.S., Jensen Brooksby and J.J. Wolf. And um, and, and it's, it's one of these things where, gosh, Tommy Paul as well. A lot of these young Americans especially, they have been buoyed by the fact that there are so many challenger events in the States. It lessens the amount of travel. It lessens the costs you have to make by traveling around the world um, to play in events. And so as a result, they, they just have this easier opportunity to get just a ton of matches. And especially if you're playing at what we would say is a lower level more opportunity to get easier wins, right? And really build that confidence, learn how to get those victories and just kind of really build that resume. I guess you know, we'd say literally and figuratively, right? Just this uh, ability to say, I can beat this type of player by doing this. I can beat a different kind of player by doing something else. And so you really learn how to become a professional at these lower levels. And was Nick Curios a player you saw? He was. Um, he played on the USTA Pro Circuit um, in 2014. Uh, this is this is phenomenal as I, I think about it. He won back-to-back challengers with us. It was uh, first. It was in Sarasota, Florida, and he beat Philip Krajinovic, decent name. And then the next week, he came back in Sarasota, Florida. He beat Jack Sock. <laughs> wow. Um, but what's really cool for me as a broadcaster, um, I got to know Nick at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, when when you are working at, at a challenger level event, there's no separation between media, of which there's one, and it's me. Uh, there's no separation between media and players. Everybody's kind of out there grinding and, and just being out there in, in one of a smaller venue, and you're just kind of at the same hotel, eating the same breakfast. Um and so, yeah, Nick and I got to know each other. And as a result, he um, obviously it's always kind of a, a difficult relationship with the media that Nick does have. But I know every time I see him, he always has actually said, I miss those days in some ways, because I think he really enjoyed the purity of it just being two people across the net from each other. And, and there's not a lot of ex- excess drama. It's just him able to play tennis and focus on his tennis, which obviously um, he struggles to do at times. Mm. So the Curios back in the Challenger, how does that compare to the Curios that we've seen of like the Curios that people might have seen in the Netflix documentary where there's, you know, racket smashes and, and outbursts of referees every yep, now and then? Pretty similar. Um, he's, he's definitely, as, as weird as this might sound, he's definitely matured um, in, in some ways, um, maybe not in others. Um, but yeah, he was always that feisty and also very confident person at that age. Um, I, I think, like I said, kind of learning the tennis at that stage, really learning again who he was. When he made that run in 2014, it was right before he made his dramatic Wimbledon um, run to the round of 16, I believe it was. So um, he, he just kind of was coming to his own, learning that he had the, the game to beat guys who were 150 to 75. And then with that confidence he already had building off of that, and suddenly he's just there and you know, now top 50 and beyond ever since. And imagine watching Kyrgios. He's one of those players that you can see at a younger age. He has those weapons that you talked about earlier that, you know, that show the potential. Are there any players you see that kind of don't have those standout weapons but still find a way to, to make it through strategy or through game plan? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, one of the beauties of, of tennis, obviously, is that there are so many different ways to win, as you know, right? So um, we did a match the other night, um, actually two qualifiers, uh, one being an Aussie and Alex Vukic, who did come as well through the collegiate system, and he lost to Brandon Holt. And Brandon's going to be known mostly at this stage by, as Tracy Austin's son. Um, and obviously, that's a, a pretty unique pedigree. 
But Brandon does things so completely differently because he's going to try to stand on top of the baseline, take time away, use these incredible hands and a a formidable tennis IQ. The problem for a lot of players, and I know you and I mentioned it earlier, just this idea that um, you can kind of see weapons at that stage for a lot of players who are 18, 19, maybe don't have the full complete game. Brandon his weapon is just very different. So he's a guy who's just going to make a ton of balls and really take time away. It's always interesting because you say, well, that is a weapon in itself, but how does that translate to the next level? And that's sometimes uh, it takes time. So you will see at a challenger level, you'll see guys who are maybe 24, 25 before they make that real breakthrough um, to this, this level and beyond top 100 and beyond. You, you definitely at this, this lower level will see players who come into their own, learn their games at 25, 26, 27, and, and really start to have those maybe couple of years. And then you you kind of have this question of what is success, right? Um, Marcos Giron is another player that comes to mm-hmm. mind, a guy who had the breakthrough 25, 26 into the top 100, playing at top 60 level tennis, two hip surgeries, but had to rebuild his game and get to that level. And it just takes different amounts of time for different styles of players. Not everybody has that raw pace and power of Nick Kyrgios. So sometimes you really do have to learn who you are as a player. And maybe just your best guess, what percentage of players you think that you see go on the challenger for a while can end up making it to play a few majors or to stay on the, on the top level tours. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Percentage wise. Um, I, I think I think at the challenger level, the majority of them will have at least the opportunity in qualies uh, of the Grand Slams, right? So they'll they'll definitely be at all four majors each year. Um, in terms of that that transitional phase, so you're essentially not playing at that level anymore. That's more of a probably thirty or forty percent rate at best. Um, I, I, most of the people who are in challengers will have this, you know, we call it a cup of coffee at the the higher level inside the top one hundred. Just kind of make that little advance and stay there for a while. It is really hard to maintain that. There are so many players in the challenger level who are. 27 to 30 years of age and have been between say 80 and 150 for the majority of their careers maybe just don't have that next level weapon to stay there but then they're going to be financially comfortable for the rest of their life because of the fact that they are playing three or four grand slams per year and able to make a good 250 300,000 just based on those four tournaments alone so um, I I would guess it's probably close to 30% are able to just make that full jump Um, but yeah, if you're if you're in every Grand Slam and in qualies, you're going to be okay for the rest of the year and just allow yourself to just have a little bit of financial freedom to, I think, just play at that challenger level with a little bit of comfort. And so we're still talking about a really, really high level of tennis, yes. then, right? Yes, it's it's often underestimated. Um, you're going to have at every Grand Slam a couple of players who maybe come through qualies and you say, well, this guy's a, a nobody, this person's a nobody, never really going to amount to anything. Yeah, yeah, maybe they're not going to be top 20 in the world, but they're a very significant successful tennis player if they are in the main draw of a grand slam there's no way around that and and the talent level is incredibly good the depth is so much more a higher quality than it was even say 20 years ago uh, on both the men's and the women's side and and just a credit to so many of the national federations who just put on so many of these tournaments to allow players just to continue to grow and it just makes the sport as a whole so much better and kind of uh how well do you think that the challenger circuit prepare players for the really top level. Yeah, it's there. There's certainly things that can be improved, right? Um, I, I think it does a great job because, like I said, you're you're playing so many different styles of player, um, whether it be somebody who's also 17 or 
32 years of age. So you're seeing so many different types of player that you really have to use that brain and, and really store that knowledge of how to do it. There are some things that could get better. And, and I think number one is the, the financial side, um, the ATP on, uh, on that side, they have made it so that housing hotel accommodations are provided for all players, which does certainly help offset some of the costs. But um, there's a lot of debate about how to make the um, you know, the, the yearly wage a little bit better um, for players in that 100 to 200 range. Um, that's something that could be improved, I think. Um, but I, I think overall, this is the kind of the, the training ground. This is where you prove yourself so that you are ready to be at that next level. And then, you know, hopefully once you get there, you're able to stay there. And that's really the most difficult part. And just one final question for you, Mike, is, you know, players kind of making the decision between playing on the challenger circuit or maybe going to college. Is that kind of, is college getting more and challenger getting less or? No, yeah, that's a fantastic point, Angus, because of the fact that in the States, the college circuit um, allows you, um, like you and I were talking about with Rinky, he was at North Carolina. You get so many wins there um, because you're going to play some smaller schools who are players are probably not fit to be professional necessarily. Um, but right now there's there's so much depth in the the collegiate game. Uh, Jensen Brooksby is a guy who was going to go to college. Um, Rinki Hijikata, Alex Vukic, Brandon Holt, all guys who are products of that um, that that whole program at a, at a college level. And I think what's really important is, you know, so many players at 17, 18, you're not physically ready. What college does, all of those collegiate programs just give you that opportunity to have a strength and conditioning coach. You don't have to pay for that. They will be with you for a full year. Um, and, and much in the same way, you can go for a year or two. I, I, a great example of it, Cam Nori. Um, he went to Texas Christian University in Dallas-Fort Worth for three years. And look where he is now. It took him some time to build the legs and kind of get stronger. Then he went to and really kind of went through the challenger level for about a year and a half. So four and a half years from 18 till he turned 22. And then he was fully ready. Um, still improvements that were made after that, but he came out, I guess I would say fully formed at that stage at, at roughly 22 years of age and was ready to go and now has been a top 10 player over the last several years. Mike Cation speaking with Angus Delaney in an interview first broadcast on AO Radio. And you can follow Mike on Twitter and Instagram at Mike C Tennis, as well as on the Behind the Racket podcast he does with the player Noah Rubin. Thanks also to Rinky Hijikata, Marka Reed, and Craig O'Shaughnessy for all their insights on this week's podcast. I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening and join the ATP podcast team again next weekend. In the meantime, enjoy the tennis. 